Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events. I'm so excited. <laughs> I'm really excited too. And I think I might need us just to ground each other here mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. otherwise I'll be all over the place. Okay. Um that never happens to me, let me just say. I'm always on point. <laughs> that, that's a joke. Okay, good. I'm glad there. I was like, that's awesome. And then I was like, wait, now I don't feel so good about myself. But I'm happy for you. <laughs> Welcome to the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. Here, we settle into the murky, tangled, and freaking hard parts of life to restore our relationship with the self so it can ripple out to the people we love, the work we do, and the world around us. If we can't fix what's wrong, then our grandchildren inherit it. In order to fix what's wrong, we have to talk about it. And we can't move that conversation forward if we're not willing to be real about where we are now. We have to push on the edge of what it means to connect. Otherwise, nothing will ever change. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong. I'm here to guide you through a series of radically honest conversations about what it means to be truly human in all of its messy, beautiful, hilarious, and heartbreaking glory. In our collective effort of looking inward, we're starting to do the outward work of reconnecting the world. While these discussions will guide you into the connectfulness practice, this podcast is not meant to be a substitute for the depth of work that you'd encounter with a licensed provider. If something in this episode touches you, reach out. That's where you initiate the ripple that restores relationships. You can learn more about my Connectfulness Counseling practice and our collective for therapists in private practice at connectfulness.com. This episode is brought to you by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is a simple, secure EHR platform for therapists in private practice. It keeps you organized and creates a container for all the details that run your practice so that you can focus on what really matters. Use the promo code CONNECTFULNESS and get two months free when you sign up at therapynotes.com. In this episode, I'm joined by Dr. Sonia Lott. Dr. Lott is a licensed psychologist and the founder and CEO of SEMPSYCH LLC, which is approved by the American Psychological Association to sponsor continuing education for psychologists. She believes that every experience is a multicultural experience, and in alignment with this belief, continuing education offered by SEMPSYCH LLC is focused on multicultural confidence with the vision of being a leader of transformation in a way in which mental health professionals and organizations conceptualize, seek, and provide training in multicultural confidence. This vision also includes the intention to be a catalyst for others to become more heart-centered, connected, and aware that despite our differences, we're all emanations of the same source. Sonia also hosts the Reflection of Multicultural Confidence weekly podcast. There, she encourages mental health professionals to reflect on and transform the narratives they've created about themselves and others through the socialization process and our experiences with power, privilege, and marginalization based on our many intersecting cultural identities. Sonia also maintains a private clinical practice in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. There, she's devoted to helping individuals and organizations transform their experiences of grief. In addition to her expertise in acute grief, she's also completed advanced training in complicated grief therapy from the Center for Complicated Grief at Columbia University. In fact, Sonia is only one of two clinicians in the Philadelphia area trained in this evidence-based protocol. I'm really excited to um, share my conversation with Sonia with you today. It's a difficult conversation to have. You'll even hear at times where I'm stumbling over some of my own words, not even knowing what to say. And I decided while putting this podcast together for you that I really felt that those were important moments for you to hear. One of the reasons that I was really looking forward to this conversation with Sonia is because of the many layers. Within those layers, when we talk about multicultural competence, you'll hear that we also are talking about many different ways in which we have been conditioned and learned or socialized to oppress ourselves and others. 
to peel back those layers to get underneath them and to do the deep healing that is really being asked of us. And that means that we're going to be facing a lot of grief. That is why I'm so excited to share Sonia because of what she brings to this conversation with her expertise around complicated grief and multicultural competence. So welcome, Sonia. Thank you, Rebecca. I'm really grateful to be here. I'm so glad to have you here. We have a really big conversation planned for today. Um, I thought it might be helpful for us to begin by telling us a little bit more about SEMPSYCH. What does SEMPSYCH stand for? Continuing Education Multicultural Psychology. And I've chosen to focus on multicultural competence because we have an ethical responsibility to really see people, um, to recognize who they are. And we can't do it without knowing ourselves and knowing them as multicultural beings, you know. And so because I know that all mental health professionals are a microcosm of the larger society and we've all been socialized in the same way that we all have work to do mm-hmm. that, you know, we think we have the best of intentions. Oh, I don't see color. Or, oh, I don't care. You know who you sleep with. Just don't hit on me. And we don't recognize the harm. Um, and, and I always talk about harm visible most of the time, you know, because the person walks in and they walk out maybe with a smile. We don't see the damage we're doing. We are first responders of the heart and mind, you know? And so I think it's just, it's, we have to do our own work. But what I know is you say this too, Rebecca, that this is messy work. It's this, you know, it's messy trying to connect, to be in relationship. And it's about being in relationship with oneself first and then with other people. Being able to show up in this vulnerable way as we are right now as we're talking, Mm -hmm. this is us. It's we. It's not you have a problem. We have a problem. How can we transform ourselves and then the work we do with other people by doing this work, by holding each other, holding safe, sacred, brave spaces, creating that and maintaining it. We can't transform what comes up if we don't sit with it, you know? Mm -hmm. Safe, sacred, brave spaces. Oh, yes. So tell us more, break down for us, what does multicultural competence mean? Okay, well, part one, Mm -hmm. multicultural competence um, has been defined in various ways, but the the uh, essence of it has to do with knowing oneself first as a multicultural being, being aware of the assumptions and biases that uh, inform our worldview or the lens from which we see the world or how we see ourselves and other people, having some awareness of uh, where those assumptions and biases come from. And uh, we're talking about really like Everybody right here. Everybody. Because we true. all have some form of assumptions about what the world is or how the right. world works. Right. Every single one of us. Right. I believe that every experience is a multicultural experience. In however we're experiencing one another, not just in the um, mental health realm or the therapy couch, if you will, but everybody. So yeah, so it has to do with an awareness of oneself in that way, as well as that of others. But as mental health clinicians, it also includes our understanding of how our biases and assumptions influence how we interact with the people we are showing up to serve, whether that be in an educational setting, in a, in a therapy setting, if we're doing research, Uh, working in the community, whatever it might be. And it also includes having a set of culturally appropriate interpersonal skills, knowing how to interact with other people. And we talk about knowing how to interact with other people who are different, quote, from us. But because I feel that every experience is a multicultural experience, even the people who we assume based on how they look or even how they identify, um, we don't they're know still, somebody else's experience. Yeah. yeah. They're still different from us. Yes. You said something to me that I wrote down. You said we have an ethical responsibility to see people as who they are. That's right. To recognize them as who they are. That's right. Um, and I think that, that that is so like 
what this world needs to hear right now. It's mm-hmm. certainly what therapists need to be modeling in the therapy room, but it goes beyond that because, you know, mm-hmm. my listeners are, are therapists, but they also are people who are seeking to be um, more connected humans. Mm-hmm. And so um, for that entire continuum of who's listening to this podcast, I think we all have this ethical responsibility because it's it's about something that is so great. It's about being able to really come together. It's about being able to see each other, which is the core of the human experience. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One of the other things that I said is that as mental health professionals, particularly therapists, we are the first responders of the heart and the mind. And that carries such a responsibility. That's right. And so we also have power um, just based on our position, even if all of the identities that we, our cultural identities are those of groups that are marginalized because we get to sit on in that chair or on that couch, we have power and privilege that the people that show up for healing with us don't have. Anytime you have the power and privilege that we have as therapists, if we're not doing this work ongoing, looking at ourselves as well as other people, but ourselves first, we are doing harm even though we have the best of intentions. And for me, there's just no way to get around that. I think that that is such a big piece that we have to do our own work and Mm -hmm. that all of us have to do our own work, clinicians especially have to do their own work. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's so true. It's messy work. It's hard work. Every mental health organization has a set of ethical standards that are worded slightly differently, but the mandate is the same, that we are to uh, be aware of our biases and assumptions and that we are to try to ensure they don't interfere with the work that we're doing. And as I was saying, as, as, as being first responders of the heart and mind as therapists, we have an obligation to do this work. But because yeah. we have power and privilege... We get to opt out if we want to. And, and the tricky or the messy, one of the many messy layers in this is that power and privilege is a really big part of multicultural work. That's Being right. Being able to sit with and acknowledge where we hold that. That's right. Yeah. Right. And, you know, even when, like, race is the primary hot button for us in this country, Um more than any other form of cultural identity. And I want to be clear in acknowledging that, but I also want to say that people of color, for example, um, we too have work to do. Um, Our work is just different. But as it relates to really being multiculturally competent, many people who are of color have privilege in religion, if they identify as Christian, in terms of sexual orientation, if they identify as heterosexual or are assumed to be. Um, there, if, if you're male, you have privilege, even if you're a black male, um, which can be uh, really very complicated, but there's still privilege. Um, and we end up using the same oppressive beliefs and ways of being to oppress other people even though that's our experience. And we don't always see ourselves in that. So I think it's important to to be clear about multicultural competence has to do with all of the identities that we have. I think that's incredibly important to point out, mm-hmm. especially mm-hmm. in how we, we end up using the same oppressive techniques that were used upon us in different ways. Mm-hmm. I, that is, it has been for me, um, a hard edge to really see and lean into mm-hmm. within myself. It's, it's um, I think, perhaps a really complicated place to be able to hold up a mirror and take a look at yourself. That's right. And, you know, I, I think about, for example, white women um, who have privilege based on skin color, but as, as women are a marginalized group, will oftentimes use the same system of patriarchy a white supremacy even to support white men, even when it means without their awareness that they're oppressing themselves. Why? How, 
I'm even twisted around my words here. Like I'm, I'm about to ask you a question about unraveling and my words got all twisted up in my mouth, okay. um, which I think is just a, it's part of, of how difficult this conversation can be. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, you know, because there, there's so many layers, I think that we have to be able to witness mm-hmm. and see Mm-hmm. And slowly start to peel back to see the next layer mm-hmm. in order to understand and, and understand the lineage of where those beliefs have come from mm-hmm. um, in order to be able to get to the point of how do I do something different. That's right. That's right. And that's why I, I'm, doing, I'm showing up in the world in this way today to do this work. Um, I'm really clear that in order, this is a lifelong journey. Um, we're always, you know, unlearning information and, and, yeah. and the more we unlearn, the more we realize there is to unlearn. And the more we learn, the more we realize there is to learn. It's never ending. And it is, it's layer by layer. And so what I try to do with SimPsych is create those sacred brave spaces to begin to peel back those layers, literally almost. Um, and so starting with the socialization process, uh, from the time we were born, we've been socialized to think in certain ways about uh, gender, about race, about, and really skin color. That's what it comes down to. There are no genes that differentiate one group from another, it's skin color. Um, also, and- other factors in there as well, like religion. And uh, spoken languages, and there's so many other components that get layered in there in addition to skin color being kind of one of those top ones. That's right. And so what happens then is that we are given messages many times non-verbally about ourselves and others based on our cultural identities. And so that becomes uh, um, uh, conditioned ways of thinking, and they are beyond our awareness So the first thing we have to do is look at that socialization process and engage in some practice that will help bring that awareness to the surface so that we can begin to work with it. Do you have certain practices, Sonia, that you, um, that you yourself practice, that you teach, that you recommend people who don't know where to begin, begin with? Mindfulness. So I have some ways of talking about mindfulness, but I'm mm-hmm. really curious what mm-hmm. your ways are. Mm-hmm. How would you describe that to, you know, the beginner? I know that you've, uh, you've asked that question to other mm-hmm. um, people <laughs> that you've interviewed on the podcast. And for me, mindfulness is um, uh, having an awareness or, or bringing forth an awareness of what you're feeling, of what you're thinking um, in any moment and being able to hold that awareness without judgment or without feeling overwhelmed or overreacting to what it is that's come up for you and being able to just sit in it, be present with it, allow it. So that already, I mean, I'm thinking of, um, I'm thinking of who I used to be. I'm thinking of different clients I've met along the way. I'm thinking of different family members and I'm thinking just of people that I know in life and people who might be listening to the show. Mm-hmm. And that might feel really out of reach to, to be able to even just sit with their own thoughts and not be judgmental. Well, it's a practice. It's yeah. it really, it's a practice. It's a learning how to do that. And so um, you have to put yourself, you really have to ask for help. You have to put yourself in a place where you can get mm. um, the, the first, the safety so that you can be vulnerable with that practice. There also has to be some learning, some factual information gathered. Like we need to understand how we are influenced by all the systems that we are a part of, yes. how the, the values and beliefs of culture are um, passed down to us, how um, uh, the different systems we're part of, schools, our religious institution, our neighborhoods, um, the dominant cultures, if you will, um, the the government, uh, the media, where we're getting all these messages about who we are as well as other people and how we're influenced by that. That's step one. We have to know that, you know. Um, we have to understand uh, how oppression is embedded 
in every system that we're a part of. It's not just the individual interactions. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So we have to understand all that. And so if we aren't uh, open to needing to learn something, we're not going to get that information and we're not going to pay attention to it because it's everywhere. Read any journal and look at the research. The American Psychological Association just published in January of this year, a special issue on racial trauma. The information is there. We have to want to, to seek to it want out. to seek it. Yeah, that's right. And, so, and then once we start kind of that peeling back the layers and seeing where these different layers of oppression exist and, and how we are playing into that system of power and privilege, mm-hmm. um, whether we're someone in power or someone who people have power over, it's important that we see our place in it so that we can start to do our own work. Right. So, yes, Rebecca, that's really a good point. And, and, and I want to say a little bit more about that. Um, for example, people who identify as gay, lesbian, or bisexual, or who identify as gender expansive or transgender, don't often recognize how much oppression is legal, discrimination in this country is legal, and it's the life that they're living, but they're not even aware. Um, In my most recent podcast, I talked about there are only seven states plus the District of Columbia in which an individual who identifies as lesbian, gay, bisexual, and or gender expansive or transgender have equal quote rights on a state level, not a federal level, but that they can know that there are laws to protect them against discrimination, housing, employment, education, their laws in the state related to bullying LGBTQ youth, that they are able to change their uh, gender markers, if you will, on birth certificates or driver's license. There are only seven States plus a district of Columbia that allow for that right now. That's right. And, and there's a big case up in the Supreme Court right now as we speak that Absolutely. Um, is going to greatly impact the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Um, looking mm-hmm. at whether or not employers have a right to fire people based on their sexuality. That's right. And so right now there's there there's many states that uh, that have anti-discrimination laws to protect people based on sexual orientation, gender identity in the workplace, but there are no federal laws. And so what's happening with the Supreme Court is that plaintiffs uh, via their attorneys are arguing that Title VII of the 1964 Civil Rights Act, which states that you can't discriminate based on sex or race, protects people who um, uh, um, identifies lesbian, gay, bisexual, gender expansive, or transgender. And the argument is that those categories fall under the definition of sex. So we'll see what the outcome is. But what I was saying about people who identify in this way, they don't even know that the job that they've been on for 10 years, that they could be legally fired simply because they are assumed to be or they identify who they are. One of the things I was thinking about a lot leading up to this conversation, so much of what I think you and I are both working towards is connection. Right. And there's this other piece, which is power. Yes. And power and connection really struggle in all relationships. I, in all the couples I work with, you know, this is something that Terry Real, one of my teachers talks about a lot is that you can't have both power and connection in the same relationship. One takes over. Um, and so, so I think, you know, we can talk about it in that kind of like one couple, two individuals at a time level, or we can expand that out Mm -hmm. and look at the systems of oppression and power and how they get in the way of our ability to connect. That's right. And how in individual relationships, as you're saying, um, if it's a work relationship, if it's a client therapist or Mm -hmm. professor, student, how power gets in the way in those connections as well. And so what happens is we can't make a choice about letting go of power or um, seeing the person as an equal, if you will, if we don't even have an awareness of the power we're walking through the world with which is exactly where your work picks up and what you're helping to um, train clinicians around. 
That's right. Yeah. That's absolutely right. And so the other thing that's really complicated about it is because as an individual, we may, no matter what our identities are, um, if you are, if you have power and privilege in all of your identities, like if you're white, male, Christian, heterosexual, upper SES, you know, all of that, as an individual, you can still feel really powerless yeah. within yourself and not recognize still all the privilege and power that you have because of your cultural or how you've been um, assigned, even though you may not, these, these identities may not be relevant to you, particularly whiteness, you know, but because that's how society sees you, you still are walking with all this power that you may not even know that you have. Right. And so that's another important distinction is the mm-hmm. difference between how society sees you and how you see yourself. That's right. Yeah. That really is the the main crux of it is that we're not always like there, there's a misalignment often mm-hmm. between how others are seeing us and what we're seeing, which is so common in so many aspects of our life. Like, you know, how many intimate relationships do you have with friends or family members or your spouse or your partner um, where they see something differently than you do? Mm -hmm. Right. right. So, so that is just such a, a, it's, it's a way that we exist in the world. We Mm -hmm. don't see things the same. Um, But when we have to be aware on some level of what is, being shown on the outside. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As well, yeah, both. Both are equally important. And one of the things that I do in my work through SimPsych, the company, is to help people to see the power that they have within. And this is, you know, definitely coming from a spiritual perspective. It's uh, mindfulness on steroids, you know. <laughs> um, it's uh, a lot of Buddhist teachings um, that, and you don't, of course, have to be a Buddhist monk to appreciate these teachings, but it's about independent of how you are oppressed, how much you're aware of your oppression or not, that there's still power that you have within yourself to transcend all of this material world stuff around who you are based on appearance. That's all nothingness. It, it, it matters, but in the end, it's nothingness. On a um, um, more ethereal realm, it's nothingness. And so I try to help people to get grounded and know the power that they have to transcend every system out there or every way that an individual based on anything can be oppressed. So it's empowerment. Um, and, and as we feel more of our own power, um, then we have less of a need to hold on to power that doesn't even belong to us. I am I'm so like lit up right now by this idea of this I, like what the words that came that come to me right now and and that I'm that, that really stuck out to me as you were just sharing was transcendent empowerment. That's right. You know, like this this idea of like that feels like liberation. It's something oh, it that happens inside. That's right. That's right. This is true for all of us, no matter where we have power, privilege, or oppression, is that we can be free within all of that. And when we're free, we don't need to hold on to that fake sense of power that we have based on luck of being born a particular way. (laughs) I'm I'm noticing that... um, I'm dancing between being right here with you and my memory flashing back to trainings I've taken with Dr. Clarissa Pincola Estes mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. the work I've done with her around so much unraveling and letting go of these old wounds and things that, that I've been carrying that others carry that we don't need. Right. You know, there's, there's this prayer that I learned from her. Uh, Please remove from me anything that is not myself. Mm. Wow. Right? Yeah. yeah. And I think in so many ways, these are those layers. These are mm-hmm. what we're talking, we're, we're making it more tangible. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I find it so interesting that so many of us are afraid to show up to do our work around, quote, multicultural competence. Mm. The secret is that 
you're showing up to transform yourself. Yes. You're showing up to become who you really are. You're showing up to let go of all of the things that you've been taught that don't serve your highest good. I wonder if part of the the trouble or the 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 struggle to get there, you know, before we learn that secret mm-hmm. is not being able to feel, you know, we go numb as a culture. We go numb. We don't feel, we don't see, we don't really even witness the pain of our own or the pain of others. That's right. Mm-hmm. That that's, even though we're sitting in that chair or we're teaching that course, if you will, even particularly the multicultural competence course that's required in every, you know, approved graduate mental health program, you know, it's, it's painful. It's painful to look at all of that and how we've participated in it, you know, and when we start to unravel it, there's pain. And we were talking about this before we started the recording. There's pain in seeing that the people that we love the most have taught us things that, A, aren't true, and B, certainly don't serve our highest good. Both within us and and outside of ourselves. That's right. And so it's really painful to look at all that, you know? Um, And we don't, who wants to deal with pain? Well, that's the thing, right? And and that's why I, I think that's one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you, because I know that, you know, multicultural competence in this piece of this like ethical responsibility to be better clinicians and, and how to teach this. This is a huge part of your work at ChemPsych. And I know that you also have a very deep expertise in grief work. And these two pieces really seem to um, meld together for me mm-hmm. as I think about, you know, what has my own process and my own evolution been like? And I still feel like such a beginner. Mm-hmm. There's so much grief work involved in this process for mm-hmm. me. Let me say two things. Number one, I want to encourage you and anybody listening to to try to keep a beginner's mind, you know, around this, um, because it is a lifelong journey and we never get there. There is here, here is there, you know, mm. um, it's that constant, uh, the more we unlearn, the more that we learn there is to unlearn. And the more that we learn, the more we learn there is to learn. Um, it's never ending. And I think that beginner's yeah. mind <laughs> keeps us grounded. It does. It, and I think it keeps us kind of like humbly present. That's right. That's yeah. absolutely right. It gives us that cultural humility that we need to want mm-hmm. to continue moving forward. Yeah. So, yeah, Rebecca, that's really an excellent point. Um, there has to be a grief process that, which is honoring loss. Um, honoring the loss of something that we valued. And when we become more aware of who we are as multicultural beings and um, how we've been socialized by the people we love the most to believe things that um, aren't necessarily true about ourselves or others, but certainly don't serve our highest good, um, then we have to grieve the letting go of that. Yeah. And if we don't, we can't transform it. We, we've, got, we've got to see it. We've got to recognize the harm that it's done to us and to others. And we have to grieve the letting go of that. That's right. And that's a hard process. It's a hard process. But grief is honoring the loss of something that once held value for us. And so much of what we're socialized to believe about ourselves as cultural beings helps us to have this false sense of, uh, self, you know, I'm I'm better than these people because I'm not poor, or I'm, I, you know, am entitled to this because of my skin color, or um, I'm entitled to live forever in this place called heaven because I've accepted Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior, whatever it might be. And so there's an incredible unraveling around belief systems when they start to crumble. They've not, we've, they've held us up. They've given us a sense of self that now is dissolved. I have noticed within me that as certain belief systems crumble around me, yeah, there's not just a grief, but there's also like a rage that emerges with it. Mm-hmm. And I've had to really learn how to begin to sit with that rage mm-hmm. so that I can, like, because I feel like the rage is kind of like the fire that helps it crumble. Mm-hmm. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it can't crumble without it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so it's it's part of what lights me up about like when I see something and I really see into it. 
it's what lets me go deeper. Mm-hmm. And that there's been a dance there for me between the grief and the rage and the mindfulness and the mm-hmm. willingness to keep mm-hmm. going. Well, this is why we need to do this work in safe, sacred spaces with people who are doing their own work. You yeah. know, we it's too hard to do all of this alone. It's a really heavy burden, um, which is why so many of us decide, never mind, you know, (laughs) no thanks. It's really difficult work and we have to have somebody who is at least a half step ahead of us in this particular part of the journey to really take us by the hand or to get in that water, that fire with them and be present with them and hold them in that process in loving care, if you will, compassion, um, that it's okay to be wherever you are in this moment, because otherwise we can get stuck in anger for a really long time. So when, when I talked to Resma Menachem, yeah, one of the things that we talked about it, that he shared with me was how important it is around mending racial trauma and doing that with the, the use of the body. Mm-hmm. And w- mm-hmm. in that conversation, one of the things we were talking about was how important community is because mm-hmm. it's where we learn to re-regulate. That's it's right. that space where, you know, when I see how I'm affecting you, I can see me in a different way. That's absolutely right. So we have to do the work in community. Um, one of the things that one part of that can be when we're doing multicultural competence training, if you will, is to have affinity groups based on oftentimes it's race because race is the hardest. The yeah. It's yeah, our biggest challenge. And so it's groups where white people are talking with white people about this, or not just talking, but transforming, working with uh, other white people who have done their work, who are trained in conflict management. They're doing their own work in terms of ongoing multicultural competence. They have the mindfulness perspective. They're grounded in their own um, spiritual work. And so they can serve as a guide, you know, but white people working with white people so that they can have the vulnerability. They don't have to be afraid that if they say the wrong thing or they're misinterpreted or whatever. And so you have people of color also in affinity groups where we're at home, if you will, or have a sense of community so that we can say how we feel, we can feel whatever it is that we can um, not have the fatigue from doing the work for white people uh, yeah. and, and being exposed to microaggressions constantly with the best of intentions, you know? So there's something to say uh, about a part of this work, including those affinity groups, that's part of what can help to create safety. And it's very different when we're, quote, calling each other in. And I choose to say calling each other in and calling each other out. Do you know what I mean? I I know what you mean, but I'm going to let you explain it for my listeners. So when we say that we're calling somebody out, there's an underlying assumption that they've done something wrong and we're going to let them know it. We're going to straighten them out. Calling someone in is pointing out the problematic aspect of the way that they're thinking or feeling and calling that to their attention and bringing them in and allowing them a space, creating a space or maintaining a space for them to be able to acknowledge that and sit with it and transform it. And that doesn't always happen in the moment. So the need for creating that space and that safety and holding the person in compassion can be an ongoing process. But it's very, it's underlying assumption is very different as to why you are, quote, calling them in or out. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And okay. I think there, there's a, a different energy that's attached to it. Absolutely. Yeah. And when you call someone out, there's, there can be a harshness to it. Mm-hmm. And when you call someone in, um, it might not be incredibly soft, but there's, um, maybe there's just more compassion attached to it. That's right. And the underlying assumption is different that when we're calling somebody out, we're assuming they've done something wrong. And there's no right or wrong about this. It's about just awareness and a willingness to take the responsibility to do the work to transform. So, you know, if if I'm unpacking this with you a little bit here, because I think you're taking me deeper into this conversation than I've taken myself, <laughs> which is what you're teaching, yeah. that we need to do this in conversation. We can't right. do it on our own. Um, right. The other piece is that when we call someone in, we're also taking responsibility. We're taking responsibility to, to take that action in a way that can be transformative. That's right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
And, you know, I just want to be clear that we're really all in this together. (laughs) You know, it's not us versus them. Uh, We all have work to do all the time, you know, and I know I'm repeating myself now, but there is here, here is there. There's no end to it. And so we're all in this together. And I see myself as a facilitator of transformation period, whether it's in my practice working with people dealing with grief or if it's doing this work as a facilitator of multicultural competence training or continuing education, that I'm continuing to transform by showing up to help other people do that. You know, so there's something in it for me too. I'm becoming my better self. How has this work transformed you? Oh gosh. (laughs) (laughs) It's um, the, the decision to show up to do this work has been transformative first. The whole thing has been, but it was a number of years and quite a process for me to be grounded enough and aware of who I really am to even say yes to showing up in this way. I had to move through my fear of uh, what it means to really be seen and heard, which is what we want the most. But on the other side of really wanting that was the fear of being rejected, uh, of not being good enough, um, which is, has been a core issue for me. I think it's a very common core issue. It's but a It's a really def- common core issue. <laughs> but really <it's>, common. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Did I say really common? Because I meant that. <laughs> yeah. And so, so to, um, you know, um, I had to do, I have to do a lot of my own work to be able to know the truth about myself, mm. to know that uh, all of the gifts and talents that I came into the world with and that have been given to me um, or that I have earned since um, have prepared me to do this work that I'm doing right now. Yes. I've had to trust the um, spiritual downloads that I'm given all the time and practice like keeping my ego out of the way, not asking any questions, but just knowing that this is a spiritual truth, that this is a, a gift that's been given to me to help me to do the work that I'm here to do and just keeping my ego out of it, not asking my little intellectual questions or you know, does this make sense? So I'm learning to trust myself in the universe more. My heart is more open. I could go on, but... I, I mean, I, and I, it's interesting that the deeper you, you unravel that for us and the deeper yeah. you go there, yeah. the, more, the more and more I see that my journey is so much like your journey. I know that, Rebecca. That, that's clear to me from all that you say on your website, my interaction with you prior to this podcast interview and listening to your podcast interviews. I know that. And that's why I'm so grateful to have this time with you. Yes. And I I think I I know the first time we chatted on the phone, I remember feeling, I don't know how to describe it, but it was just this like, I've known your soul for a long time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, and so this is this is really delicious to, for us to be able to go into this. And I, I really appreciate how you're bringing uh, kind of like a, a map or a template to this work that I don't think many others have put together in quite the way that you have. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel that there's a lot of talk in our society about cultural competence. That's right. And... It's all great in its own way, mm-hmm. all of it. All of it is important. Mm-hmm. The part that where I have felt some of my own stiffness come out, my own um, boundaries and walls going up around doing the work, is that sometimes it has this really hard edge that is abrasive and makes me feel even worse about myself in mm-hmm. the process. And I know mm-hmm. that that's a part of the work. And I know that I have to be willing to go to those places. When I hear you talking about it, I want to go there in a different way. I don't feel mm-hmm. ashamed that I have to, like, there's a, there's another piece to it where curiosity can be the guide because mm-hmm. we could meet people and join people. And, mm-hmm. and I feel that you guide into this work in a, I'm really careful about say I don't want to say things like gentle and soft because I don't think this work itself it's messy, right? It's not it gentle is. and soft. It is. Right? But it's mm-hmm. 
I'm not like walking into swords. I'm walking into like arms that are saying, come here and do this work with us. That's right. Let's do this together. I say that on my website, let's do this together. And it really is a together. You know, um, I was saying how I've had to transform to even show up to do this work. Um, I continue to transform. I mean, it's about being heart centered. It's about having an open heart. I mean, it's, it's relationship doing this work together. I'm, I'm teaching you, you're teaching me, we're growing each other. You know, it's not always gentle and sweet and all that, but it's always heart-centered. It's always sacred. It's always being present and and vulnerable with one another um, with the ability, from my perspective, as the facilitator of facilitators, the ability to hold all of that, stay grounded, you know, and hold all of that with other people and how teach other people who are participating in the workshops to do the same thing for themselves and others. Yeah. It, it really is that way. Oh. Hmm. And just as you took that breath, yeah, there's a lot of breathing that goes on in <laughs> these workshops. There has to be. Of, yeah. Because yeah. because otherwise this work gets stuck inside of us. I notice that I'm like That's tapping right. at my chest right now mm-hmm. just to try to make more space for for this conversation to come through us, to come mm-hmm. through me. Because sometimes things do get really lodged and stuck inside of us. I think that's what grief does, right? That's right. Those are those edges where we have to learn how to work with it. Mm-hmm. 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 I'm wondering if you can say something or, or speak into the being able to sit with yourself in that in that space in that in that grief work. I think everybody could perhaps use a little a little bit of compassion around that, right? Okay. So what I tell people about grief is that it is inevitable, and if you can't express it, you know the sadness, the confusion, the um, anger, the whatever your grief might look like. And it's unique to each of us. And it's unique to the same person each time we go through it for the same or different reasons. That it's inevitable. And if we don't express it, if we don't allow it, our body will very lovingly take it on for us. Mm -hmm. And when our body takes on the unexpressed or unresolved grief, Years down the road, it manifests itself. Totally. In an increased risk for diabetes, high blood pressure, uh, cancers, uh, weight gain, insomnia. I mean, just a a host of ways um, that our body will. And more subtle ways too, like clenched jaws. That's right. Um, shoulders that are always scrunched up, right? That's like right. bellies that are always upset mm-hmm. or or feeling like there's some tension in there. Like it mm-hmm. it may be in those more significant heart attack, diabetes, stress, mm-hmm. hypertension kind of ways. And it can also be in the more subtle ways that affect our daily life. That's right. And so that accumulate over time because the message that we're giving to our peripheral nervous system, particularly the um autonomic nervous system, uh, and we talk about that, you know, it's fight or flight, is that we're in a constant state of hypervigilance. And so our sympathetic nervous system is uh, interpreting our stress as a, a physical emergency, even though it's neither physical or psychological emergency, our bodies interpret that. And so our heart rate is always elevated. Our blood pressure may be up. Our adrenal glands are releasing cortisol, you know, the stress hormone to prepare us for an emergency that we're really not in. But it's, it's a, a, an accumulative effect that happens that over time we don't even feel. What, what's striking me, because like, I'm thinking back to all the different episodes I've done on this podcast, mm-hmm. on the connectfulness practice, mm-hmm. and one of the people I interviewed was Mark Wolin, and we talked about inherited family trauma. Yeah. And so I'm thinking about you know, how oppression is passed down from generation yeah. to generation, yeah. whether we're talking about the people who are oppressed or we're talking about the oppressors. Mm-hmm. The, the patterns are passed down. Mm-hmm. And what that trauma 
what what all what all of that feels like to hold within our bodies that's right right, right. Uh, like just without even being aware of it and that's right. then there's this process like as we're talking about this kind of transcendent empowerment this liberation mm-hmm. when we start recognizing it and peeling back those layers and those those parts of us within our bodies can start to relax and create more space and and to heal that's right. And to heal. There's really, there's no separation between mind and body. And I believe there's no separation between mind, body and spirit, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so wherever you start doing the work, it can transform the rest of your being in that way. And so the thing I was saying about grief and talking about if we don't allow the grief to happen, then our bodies will take it on for us. Um, and, you know, so it shows up later. But if we can uh, uh, surrender to the grief process. There's so much good that can come from that. That we can, we need support. Again, that's why it's important to be. If you, if we're talking about multicultural competence training in a place where the facilitators are able to show up in the ways that I talk about. But whatever it is that you're grieving, that you need to have a sense of support. You need to have a small tribe, if you will, who's on that path with you because it can be overwhelming. But if we can surrender to it, it's going to pass. It's going to come and it's going to go. And and so it teaches us that we can um, survive painful experiences, that we can become transformed, if you will, from very painful experiences. And that's, in fact, why I do the grief work in my practice, because of my own transformation around profound grief. I find that grief follows me around, and it's one of my (laughs) biggest teachers. (laughs) Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, You know, the places where it shows up and where I can lean in and make space for it are the often the places where I experience the most transformation in, my, right. in my soul, in my, in my being. That's right. And so grief really, as cliche as it may sound, can really be a best friend to us. You know, we never um, want to lose things that are of value to us, you know. And again, there's a grief that um, we deserve to honor for ourselves whenever we lose something we found a value, even if it's something material, you know, but certainly relationships, if you know, through breakup or through uh, the death of, you know, um, the loved one, we never would invite these things in ever. But that the truth about living is the only thing that we can depend on is that change is going to happen. Yes. <laughs> so if we can <laughs> lean into that impermanence, right, um, then we suffer less. You know, we we suffer less when it happens and, and we're able to move through it. It's just a truth about life. Everything shifts. We can be in the best relationship ever. You know, we've shown up to see uh, uh, therapist Rebecca Wong for that amazing relationship therapy. And then we have the best relationship and then one person dies. Hmm. That's living. You know, that's. Living. that's yeah, it's a cycle of life. And so if we can approach loss in that way, um, even when it feels so unfair, it's the only thing that we can depend on that things will change, nothing stays the same, that there will be loss in our life, then we can honor what grief can bring us. And this is, it's sounding to me, you know, I interviewed Susan Piver on this podcast and she talks a lot about Buddhist teachings. And, oh, yes. Right? And so I'm, I'm hearing this is the intersection point where that comes into this work also because to, to be human is to suffer, but to grasp is often the cause of our suffering. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I love that podcast interview too, by the way. <laughs> She was um, wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it was so pretty amazing. So fortunate to have some really amazing guests on the mm-hmm. um, Yeah, that's true. That's really true. Um, I, I remember uh, listening to that podcast and saying, yeah, yeah, Susan, yeah, yeah, you know. Um, but yeah, a lot of my uh, uh, grounding and my beliefs come from Buddhist teachings. Yeah. Um, and um, being aware that we all get to choose if we choose any religious or spiritual teachings. Um, I just want to be really clear that um, it's the paradigm that works for me, but I recognize that not all people can um, 
or want to um, even entertain seeing the world from that way, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. I think this is the one of those pieces is that there's so much individuality in how we do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's also so much commonality in how mm-hmm. we do this work. Um, like, I don't know all the details of, of your own work and your own journey, your personal work. I mm-hmm. know that you don't know all the details of mine. And yet we still feel that there's stuff we have in common along the way. And a lot that we, I'm sure, don't. But enough that holds us in a space where we can create some sacredness together. Gotcha. And I think that's what this work is really about, that if we're going to be healers in this world mm-hmm. and we're going to help people. Mm. Dr. Estes also said, <laughs> it just came, it just like popped into my consciousness, so I have to share it. Okay. She, she also says that as healers, one of the, <laughs> the most sacred, one of the biggest things that we can do we can help people heal from is their own personal oppression. Yeah. And so this is that unraveling. This is that coming out in another expression. And this is the place where when we're aware of the power that we hold, the privilege that we hold when we're doing our own work, that we can do more ethical work. We can, we can really be with each other more. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know, the whole thing about individual healing from oppression on an individual level, this is one of the things that I try to say so frequently to people of color who say, well, you know, I don't need any multicultural competence training. I'm living it. No, you're really not. You're living the oppression, but you're not living multicultural competence. And if you learn more about One, the ways in which you are oppressed and how that works, it gives you the power to begin to be a change agent to help to dismantle some of that. But even more, the teachings or the training includes how to, again, transcend what is out here in the external world by doing your own work internally Mm -hmm. and recognizing who you are just because you are just really getting connected to the I am that you deserve. It's your birthright to be seen and to be heard. It's your birthright to be treated with respect just because you're here. That's it. I think that this is so central to so much of both of our work is Mm -hmm. getting back to this point of our birthright. That's right. Um, And I think this is the thing that it's, it's like a secret that, for whatever reason, most of us don't know that we even have that birthright and that we can claim it. That's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's what oppression does, right? It, it blinds us from the things that would otherwise set us free. That's absolutely, that's absolutely right. <laughs> oh my gosh. Yeah. In, in such a simple, that simple sentence, Rebecca is really it. That's a key that unlocks that. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the work I'm showing up in the world to do. Yeah. Thank you for showing up. (laughs) Seriously. Thank you. So if our listeners are interested in working with you, I'm going to absolutely say yes to that in any way that we can make that happen. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, you, you have a lot that you're offering, right? So mm-hmm. we can start with your new podcast, which is oh. one way that people could get to know you and your work. Oh, that's right. Thank you. Um, the podcast is Reflections on Multicultural Competence. And it's a weekly podcast that's uh, intended to encourage mental health professionals to Uh, become more aware of, reflect on, and transform the narratives that we've created about ourselves and other people. Yeah. Yeah. Are you helping to build communities also within your work? I am. I am. But I'm very um, mindful about uh, how I do that. So the communities come from, um, you know, uh, can be from trainings and then it's my intention that down the road, um, 
with SimSite that people who have attended the three-day um, sort of signature workshop, the, in, the intensive, quote, um, intermediate level multicultural competence and mindfulness-based approach, um, will be invited to uh, participate in ongoing, uh, like, year-long uh, training together um, uh, digging deeper into uh, if it's race or ethnicity or gender identity or sexual orientation or some combination that these are people who have already begun their work and have a foundation and so we're working together week after week online and doing um, um, continued education continuing education so that there's a different connection a different level of awareness and sacredness around than interacting in, in smaller communities that sounds so Does that make sense? Yeah, okay. it does. It sounds okay. really, really mm-hmm. delicious. I'm going to share a link in our show notes of where people can find you. www.semsych.com, which is C-E-M-P-S-Y-C-H.com. And that stands for Continuing Education Multicultural Competence. That's right. I'm just so grateful for the work that you're doing in the world and how you're making all of us um, you're really holding a space for for healing on a very large level um so uh i'm grateful to be part of that web with you and um and connected to you thank you for joining us today to talk about multicultural competence and the way that it intersects with grief (sighs) (laughs) and rebecca um i don't know that i can express fully my gratitude for having invited me for this podcast, but to do this interview, but also um, I just want to say, and I mentioned this in my podcast notes from episode two, that I'm so grateful for you. Um, You reached out to me when I first had Mm -hmm. the courage to say out loud that I was going to do a podcast. That's right. You reached out to me. um, I mean, in a very vulnerable moment because that was part of my saying, yes, um, I'm, I'm showing up. I'm going to allow myself to be seen that, you know, to the call. um, That's right. And so you reached out to me and offered to support me in that endeavor, um, at a time when I needed it most. And I will always be so grateful to you for that. And, you know, I think the gratitude is mutual. It's interesting how these <laughs> circles happen. You know, we, we'll keep yeah. going in them. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm really grateful um, that you, you have put this work into the world um, and that, that it's there to feed us all. That's right. So, yeah. That's right. Absolutely right. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. these little love fest. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know I'm sitting you. Do you feel the virtual hugs? I'm I do. Sitting I feel it. I feel it. And I'm so grateful that you have joined me on the show today. So thank you again, Sonia. Thank you, Rebecca. <laughs> Listeners often ask how they can support the ongoing production of the Connectfulness Practice Podcast. And truly, the best way that you can is to simply subscribe and rate the show on your favorite podcasting platform. And then hop on over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Learn more about my Connectfulness Counseling Practice, Intensives, and our collective for therapists at connectfulness.com. This episode is brought to you by Therapy Notes. Therapy Notes is a simple, secure EHR platform that keeps you organized and creates a container for all the details that run your private practice so that you can tend to what really matters. Use the promo code CONNECTFULNESS and get two months free when you sign up at therapynotes.com. I want to express deep gratitude for Sarah and Chris Ferris, the musicians behind the beautiful soundtrack for this Connectfulness Practice podcast, which was recorded and mixed at Kidney Stone Studio. This podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, and copyrighted by Connectfulness Counseling. Thanks for listening.
Our next live workshop, Integrating Mind and Heart, will be held online from September 22nd to 24th, 2023. If you want to get closer and trust each other and yourself to get through the hard moments, this is the workshop for you. Sign up at whydoesmypartner.com slash events.